This is the last of my current series on marriage, and I'm sure some of you will breathe a sigh of relief. I had a couple of men last week that said, hey, uh, lighten up, will you? These have been, there have been some hard words that needed to be said, and I'm sure we'll have to return to this theme from time to time because it seems to be a recurrent problem. But uh, at least we'll uh, put it at rest for a while. And what I'd like to do next Sunday at least, and perhaps for the next two Sundays, is talk about the single state, or being single-minded. And uh, from 1 Corinthians 7, talk about some of the greater benefits of being single. Uh, And perhaps that will balance things out a bit for those of you who feel that you've been overlooked the last uh, two months. Would you turn to Proverbs uh, 5? Proverbs 5. This is a a very difficult subject to speak on, and it's not that it's difficult to say the words. I never find it hard to say what I want to say. I just, every time I teach on this subject, everybody clutches. It's it's perceptible. You can feel it. Just an uneasiness that begins to settle in on people. Nevertheless, there are some things that I think need to be said, and we need to take this matter of adultery uh, very seriously. Proverbs is a good place to begin uh, this discussion. Proverbs belongs, as I'm sure you know, in a in a category of books a style of literature that's called wisdom literature. Now, by wisdom, the the Old Testament writers are not thinking so much of acquired information, but applied information. Wisdom is skill at life, the capacity to make your way through life successfully. We use that term when we refer refer to certain youngsters being streetwise. They're able to get through the concrete jungle uh, without uh, destroying themselves. They're survivors. And that's, that's what the wisdom literature does for us. It teaches us to survive in a world where we're always under attack. Proverbs is, is simply one of several uh, of the wisdom books. Uh, Ecclesiastes is a, another. Song of Psalms is one. Certain psalms are considered under, usually considered under that category. But Proverbs is a prime example of wisdom literature. As you read Proverbs, the thing you're impressed with is that it's uh, simply a collection of Proverbs. Uh, axioms, maxims, pithy, terse statements about life, uh, couplets that enshrine the wisdom that uh, the sages of Israel uh, gathered as a result of their observations. There was a class of wise men in Israel who made these observations and were directed by the Spirit of God to uh, preserve them for us in the form that, that we have in Proverbs. Now we have the same sort of thing in our culture. Uh, if some young man comes to you and wants counsel about marriage and he says, I found this young lady, what should I do? Uh, you might say, well, he who hesitates is lost. And he goes to someone else and he says, what do you think I should do? And that person says, well, a bird in hand is worth two in the bush. And then he goes uh, home to his mother and his mother says, look before you leap. 
Well, those are all proverbs, just simple statements of, of truth, general observations about life that one generation passes uh, on to the next, and that's what you have in Proverbs. The difference here, of course, is that this is inspired proverbial wisdom. This is God at work, his thoughts about life and, and things, and we need to keep, keep that in mind. This is not just uh, good advice, it's, uh, it's a revelation. Uh, the book of Proverbs begins with an introduction, the first uh, seven verses. Actually, why don't you turn back to chapter 1 for a moment. We'll get to 5 in a minute or two. The first nine chapters of Proverbs are different from the other sections of the book. The, uh, from chapter 10 on, you have a series of disconnected, seemingly disconnected Proverbs. But chapters 1 through 9 are a series of talks. Uh, we could call them talks to teenagers. This is, uh, this is a father and a mother instructing their son about, about life, preparing him for life. And the introduction to these, uh, these little sermons or homilies or talks is given in the first seven verses. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for attaining skill and discipline, for understanding words of insight and so forth. And then the first of these talks begins in verse 8. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. It will be a garland to grace your head and a chain to adorn your neck. Each of these talks is introduced by that formula. Listen, my son. Give heed. Listen up. Get wise. I'm going to teach you how to make your way uh, through life successfully. One of the reasons that we as a human race don't accumulate much uh, knowledge is that we don't listen to the generation that precedes us. Back in the 60s, the saying was, don't trust anyone over 30. And unfortunately, that's an attitude that's still widely uh, pervasive. You don't want to listen to the older folks. They don't know what they're talking about. And so we have to learn the same hard lessons all over again. I'm sure you've heard Mark Twain's comment about his father, whom he thought was the most ignorant man he'd ever met until he went away from home for a year or two, and when he came back, he was amazed at how much the old man had learned. <laughs> and and I, I find that very true. I listen to my father now, and I'm amazed at the wisdom he's accumulated since I, since I left home. I should have listened to him. I had to learn a lot of those lessons that he was trying to teach me the, the hard way. And that's the point of view of of Proverbs. Do you want to be wise? Do you want to live successfully? Do you want to uh, avert the consequences of evil actions? Well, th this, is, this is how you do it. You listen. Because he says it will be like a crown on your head and a garland around your neck. It will give you beauty and, of character and, and grace and attractiveness of, of personality. Uh, essentially, what, what the father tells the son in this first uh, talk is uh, don't... Uh, Align yourself with people who value things more than money. Those who go out to make easy money, as they say in verse 11, come along with us, let's lie and wait for someone's blood, let's waylay some harmless soul. We will get all sorts of valuable things and fill our house with plunder. These are wicked uh, peers, he says, who may entice you to do wickedness. Don't listen to them, listen to parents, because he says... In verse 18, these, these men lie in wait for their own blood. They waylay only themselves. They're fools. He says in the, in the line that precedes that one, with a, even a bird 
you know, in capturing a bird, you have to slip up from behind. But he said, these people ensnare themselves. They trap themselves. They're dummies, he said. Now, that's a theme that you'll see all the way through Proverbs. Sin in Proverbs is not so much against God. You know, when you read the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, sin is against God. But in Proverbs, sin is against yourself. You destroy yourself. You demean yourself. Your, your humanity, your manhood and womanhood uh, is dissipated. Your energies uh, are, are dissipated. Don't do it for that reason. It costs too much. Sin's a very uh, costly commodity. Now, uh, in chapter 2, in uh, enumerating some of the greater benefits of wisdom, he comes around to a theme that you see again uh, over and over in the book of Proverbs. It's that of sexual immorality. Uh, verse 12 of chapter 2. This is the second of the talks. The Father says, Wisdom will save you from the ways of wicked men, from men whose words are perverse. And in verse 16, it will save you also from the adulteress, from the wayward wife with her seductive words. So that wisdom will protect you from wayward men, and it will protect you from wayward women. Now let me uh, hasten to say that the blame in Proverbs for immorality is not placed so much on the young on the young woman as it is on the young man. The uh, picture of the wayward wife is not uh, so much that she is she is culpable as the person who succumbs to her temptation. She's treated as unknowing, not realizing what she's doing. But uh, the boy, since it's the, the young man who's being addressed, is the one who has to keep his eyes open. He's responsible for keeping any relationship proper. Uh, he describes her as the adulteress, the wayward wife with her seductive words. This is the, the notorious femme fatale that uh, all young men are, are warned about, who has left the partner of her youth. She, she sins against her husband. And ignored the covenant she made before God. She sins against God because she violates her marriage covenant. For her house leads down to death. The slope is down toward an untimely death. And her paths to the spirits of the dead. None who go to her return or, or retain the paths of life. As Kidner says, she offers a taste of life, but she sells you down the river. The slope is down. From, from that point on. Everything looks good initially, but the results are always bad. And then you have this uh, terrible note of finality in verse 19, none who go to her return. Uh, actually, the, the verb that's translated go here is a participle implying ongoing action, and it should be translated, no one who keeps on going to her will regain the path of life. He's not talking about a one-time slip. Uh, he's talking about a lifestyle of adultery. And the point that he makes here is a point that's made over and over again in Proverbs. Adultery is a form of suicide. It always looks good initially, but it's never an option, no matter how attractive it may be, because of the terrible damage it does to the human personality. It's devastating in its ultimate impact. Now let's go to chapter 5, and this is where I'd like to uh, spend the bulk of our time. Chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, 
the last statistics I saw indicate that 20% of marriages have uh, their incidence of either ongoing or habitual adultery. And this sort of thing is promoted by the media and seems to me particularly by country western music. And if, and if we're going to be counterculture, as Jesus wants us to be, we're going to increasingly find ourselves standing against more and more of our culture. This is being portrayed as a, as a, as a reasonable alternative to faithfulness. As a matter of fact, I know counselors uh, who are counseling troubled uh, couples to have an affair as a way of adding spice to their, to their relationship. That sort of thing is going on. It's in crescent, and we might as well face it. And uh, if we're going to be God's men and women, we're, we're going to have to swim against the tide. Now, verse 5. Ch- excuse me, chapter 5, verse 1. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen well to my words of insight. Here's this uh, introduction again, which is more than a, a, a mere formula. It's an admonition to perk up your ears, to listen, to hear what he has to say. The reason... The father wants the son to, to listen, is in verse 2, that you may maintain discretion and your lips may observe knowledge, or uh, perhaps better translated, that you may make a decision and make a vow. In other words, the time to decide about sexual matters is in the cold light of day, not on a warm, moonlit night. The place to make the decision is in the, in, in the quietness and the secrecy of your own heart, not in someone else's apartment. That's not the place. This is, the nature of sexual temptation is that it is so subtle, so seductive, that it is almost impossible to resist at the, at the time unless the decision has been made before the fact. You just decide objectively. I am not going to be unfaithful to my wife by God's grace. Period. That's not an option for me. Most of you know that the uh, <clears throat> the name of the city of Meridian came from the Meridian that runs right through straight through the center of the city. And if you follow it out to the south, there's a little hill with a bench uh, benchmark on it, a little brass plate that indicates the starting point from which all the sections in this area were surveyed. And that's the prime Meridian a prime point on the meridian. And uh, I thought once uh, uh, when I was out there that that's the way you have to handle uh, morality from a Christian standpoint. You have to have a, a benchmark. You have to have a prime point when you say, by God's grace, I will not do this thing. There's really no other way to handle it. And that's what the father is saying to the son. I'm saying these things. Listen to me. Because I want you to make up your mind now and make a vow now. Because, as he goes on to say, verse verse 3, the lips of an adulteress drip honey. She is a sweetie. And her speech is smoother than oil. She is an old smoothie. But in the end, she's bitter as death, sharp as a double-edged sword. See, that's the problem. It always looks so good. The dates, you know, you haven't had a date for years, and all of a sudden you're setting up clandestine dates and the secrecy and 
and the fact that you're found uh, attractive again. And uh, people on the outside always look preferable to people we know well. Uh, things become markedly different when you have to live with someone and they begin to make demands upon you. If the circumstances were reversed and your wife was your lover and your lover was your wife, you'd find your lover just as predictable and boring as, as your wife or your husband. And your wife would be excited. Uh, most, most affairs don't last very long, three to six months, they tell me, because this, this aftertaste begins to set in. Now, that's what he's saying. Make a decision. Make up your mind. Don't play mental games about this thing. Just decide that you're not going to go down this route because, uh, though it may look good initially, she is so sweet. Her kisses are so sweet and so smooth. But uh, it's like eating something that gives you heartburn. There's a, there's a bitter aftertaste wrecks and destroys your life. It isn't worth it. I don't know how many men who have told me that that one fact alone has kept them from taking that, that first step that leads, uh, that is the slope down down to her house, as, as Proverbs 2 puts it. Just realizing, looks good, but I know what, what the results will be. Uh, furthermore, he says in verse 5, her feet go down to death and her steps lead straight to the grave. Uh, you may think she's going to take you to seventh heaven, but really she takes you to hell. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths are crooked. Actually, the, the uh, Hebrew word means unstable. She's restless. Doesn't abide by the structure of her own commitment to her husband. But she knows it not. She's, she's ignorant of the consequences. She's foolish, but her foolishness is, uh, uh, is basically the foolishness of ignorance rather than rebellion. Now, a couple of pages on in chapter 7, you have a further description of this young lady and the foolish young man who listens to her. This is the tenth of these uh, talks. Chapter 7, verse 1, My son, keep my words and store up my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and you'll live. Conversely, uh, ignore them and you'll die. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. The Hebrew says the little man in your eye. Uh, if you look in someone's eyes, you'll see yourself upside down. And the Hebrews uh, looked at that as the little man of the eye and the pupil of the eye is what they're talking about. The, uh, uh, that's the part of our eye that we try to protect. Instinctively, we'll close our eyelids if there's some danger, some threat to our eye. You say, that's the way you ought to be about this truth. Protect it like that. Very delicate, very sensitive sort of thing. Easily injured, so protect it. Guard it as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. We would say tie a string around your finger. Remind yourself of this truth. When you go down to your office tomorrow morning, tie a big red ribbon around your, your finger. And when you walk in the office, you know, I, I, I will not succumb. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you're my sister, you're intimate, uh, my intimate uh, in the ancient world. Uh, Couples, married couples, didn't show affection in public. But you could to your sister. You could hug her. You could embrace her in public, but not your wife. That's why in Song of Songs, the uh, groom says, Oh, says to his bride, I wish you were my sister. I'd kiss you on the streets. Because you, you didn't do that to your wife. It, it wasn't culturally proper. But you could kiss your sister. 
And so when he says, treat the truth as your sister, it means as, as an intimate, someone that you embrace, someone that you care for deeply. And call understanding your kinsmen. They will keep you from the adulteress, from the wayward wife with her seductive words. And then what follows is a, a description of her seduction, very uh, skillfully uh, sketched out for us here. Now listen, verse uh, 6. At the window of my house, I looked out through the lattice. They didn't have glass panes. They usually had either wooden or some kind of fiber lattice that kept the sun out of the room. I looked out through the lattice. I saw among the simple. I noticed among the young men a youth lacking judgment. Here's a a lightweight, some feather brain who has read Playboy magazine and thinks he knows everything about life. And he's out on the prowl. He was going down the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house at twilight as the day was fading as the dark of night set in. So graphic, you can see this young man uh, cruising the bars, looking for someone to pick up. Then out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. She had seduction on her mind. She is loud and defiant. Her people never stay at home. She's brassy, uh, shameless. Now in the streets, now in the squares, at every corner she lurks. What I envision are these poor, desperate women that you see sitting alone on bar stools, just waiting for someone to, to pick them up. Very often... Uh, unloved, unwanted, unappreciated at home. Just looking for love someplace. She took hold of him and kissed him, and with brazen face she said, I have peace offerings at home. Today I fulfill my vows. She's a religious woman. She's gone to the temple and offered up the animal for the peace offering and brought back the remnants of the animal that they normally consumed in a feast. And She said, that's, uh, that's ready at home. So I came out to meet you. I looked for you and have found you. It's not true. She was looking for anyone, but she personalizes it. And he's flattered by her attention. I have covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us drink deep of love till morning. Let us enjoy ourselves with love. My husband is not at home. The, the, the phrase in Hebrew is a very derisive, the man. I said almost with a sneer, the man, the old man isn't home. What, what luck. He's gone on a long journey. He's taken his purse filled with money and will not be home till full moon. Be gone at least two weeks. We're safe. With persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk all at once or suddenly he followed her. There's a moment of hesitation and then he capitulates. Like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose, like an, till an arrow pierces his liver, like a, like a bird darting into a snare. Little knowing it will, it'll cost him his life. There's so much power in those words, and there's so much truth in that statement. Adultery costs too much. So he says, sons, listen to me, pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn to her ways or stray into her paths. Many are the victims she has brought down. Her slay are, are a mighty throng. Strong men 
he brings down. And it reminds me of Paul's words, let him that think he stands take heed lest he fall. Now we could turn this thing around. And we could address these words to women as well. The Proverbs are addressed to men because that was the method of instruction in those days. That was the cultural norm. We can turn it around and these words apply just as equally to to young women or older women. Now let's go back to chapter 5. Two ways to abstain, to stay away from adultery. Best counsel you'll ever get, believe me, right out of out of God's word. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. That's the first step. Just stay away from her or him. Just don't stir up a relationship with anyone else other than your marriage partner. Don't become intimate, even emotionally with anyone other than your, your partner, your spouse. The secret things of your hearts belong to her. The secret things of your life and of your body belong to her. They don't belong to anyone else. So just stay away. Stay away physically. Stay away mentally. Uh, Jesus uh, made his point in Matthew 5 when he said if we... If we think about adultery, it's pure, unadulterated adultery. The the thought is the same as the act. It's a serious thing. Nothing to be temporized with. Uh, Fantasizing about sexual matters seems to be a kind of an evangelical sin because nobody can catch you. Nobody knows. You can sit in your office or you can sit at home and fantasize and no one knows and you can... Preserve the facade, the, the facade of, of, of purity when mentally your, your mind is awash with, with the wrong kind of sexual attitudes. Um, those are the thoughts that lead us astray. It also occurs to me that, that it's almost, if not as dangerous, to fantasize about romantic inter- interludes. Uh, very often people who have unhappy Marriages, I think this is uh, certainly not uniquely, but more often than not, a feminine trait to, to fantasize about the white knight who comes along and rescues you or to read gothic romances and really get into the action or listen to afternoon soaps and, and wish that your husband was this way and fantasize about the ideal husband. It just opens you up to all sorts of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of attacks upon your fidelity makes people more attractive when they do come along. So Jesus says, put the thoughts out of your mind. Be faithful to your husband or wife, not only in, in, in deed, but in, but in mind as well. But Jesus goes on to say, if your eye offends, you pluck it out. If your hand offends, you cut it off. Now, if he were speaking literally, that would be a terrible thing to do. But he's not. He's speaking metaphorically. And I think he's saying this, just to put it bluntly. Keep your eyes and your hands off of other women. And keep your eyes and your hands on your wife. It's just that simple. Because those are the things that stir up the improper thoughts. It's what we see and basically what we touch. Those things belong to your wife. That's what it means to be a one-woman kind of man. 
There is nothing, I think, more devastating to women than men who flirt or who look at beautiful women or who compare them with their wives in various ways. You see it all the time. You're in a restaurant, a couple sitting there, and a beautiful young woman walks in the room, and the men all look at her, and the women all look down. It's a, it's, it's, it shames them to some extent, and it angers them. And very often it makes them distrustful. Uh, if if they feel that you're not faithful in thought and in what you do with your eyes and your hands, how can they trust you and with other parts of your uh, of your body and your life? And that's why Jesus' words are so are so powerful, so meaningful. We need to keep our eyes and our hands where they belong, and that's on our spouse. Be a one woman kind of man or a one woman, uh, a one man kind of woman. Now, uh, the reason, again, in verse 9, he uh, drives the nail in a few strokes and then turns the nail over, uh, turns the board over and whacks it down on the other side, uh, makes it uh, very firm. Verse 9, lest, see how he's arguing, keep to a path far from her, lest you give your majesty to others and your years to the cruel one, the word for majesty is basically the word for manhood. One of the consequences of, of unfaithfulness in mind and in body is that we give away our manhood. We become less uh, manly. It's ironic. In, in, in our culture where macho is to be the sexual conquistador and uh, to cut notches in your belt, that's macho. But uh, the Bible turns that upside down. Uh, muy macho is being faithful to your wife. That's the most manly thing you can do. Because if you're unfaithful to her, you, you dissipate your manhood. And not only that, you uh, lose out to men who preserve theirs. Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich another man's house. There's something about adultery that tends to preoccupy us. And... Uh, uh, you can actually begin to, to lose out, not only physically, but financially as well, to those who have maintained their, their majesty, their manhood. And then in verse 11, at the end of your life you will groan when your flesh and body are, are spent. The, the Hebrews talked often about good old age. Uh, there's either good old age or there's bad old age, and bad old age is, a, is to be elderly and to be filled with remorse and regret over the past. And he said, that's the second consequence. Not only will you lose your manhood and lose out to those who, who retain theirs, but when you get to be older, you'll look back on your life with uh, a great deal of, of regret. And he implies here that physically you'll pay the price. When he says uh, your flesh and body are spent, he may be referring to venereal disease, which in those days was a, was a real problem. They had no penicillin. They had no way to... Uh, uh, to uh, cure venereal diseases. And then finally in verse 14, he says, I, you will face ruin, utter ruin, in the midst of the whole assembly. Uh, there are many men in the Christian community and women who are uh, adulterating their spiritual life in the sense that they are unfaithful to their wives uh, mentally and physically. And the problem is that they're living a, a double life, and they know it. Up front, they're 
they may be teaching a class and they may show themselves to be pure, but within they're not and they know it and there's always the possibility of, of exposure and the shame that comes with that exposure. And it haunts them. It takes away their joy. I want to tell you a modern horror story. This really happened. I've shared this with the men on Wednesday morning. And it just chills my blood every time I, I tell this story. This actually happened. A Christian businessman down in the San Francisco Bay Area who literally had a girl in every port. He traveled a great deal. He was very active in Christian circles down in, in that uh, region. Uh, did a bit of Bible teaching. Was involved in a home Bible study. But he kept uh, women in two or three places throughout the West Coast. And he was traveling up to uh, Seattle to see his daughter, who was a student up there in the university. Spent some time with her, went back to the hotel, and was propositioned by the clerk. And he thought, why not? So uh, gave permission to send up a young lady. And about uh, 30 minutes later, there came a knock on the door. And he opened the door to see his daughter who was working her way through the University of Washington as a prostitute. Now, that actually happened. Now, that's a bit more dramatic than the kind of shame that uh, often uh, comes, but, but that's the sort of thing we face when we, when we play this crazy game of duplicity. And the point he wants to make is that it is too costly. You have to make up your mind beforehand. I'm not going to go this route. It costs too much. I'll waste my youth and dissipate my energies and I'll go into old age regretting and hating myself because of everything that I've lost and there's always that possibility of exposure and, and ruin. Now, the positive side, how are we doing for time? I've forgotten since we've changed the time. When am I done? Quarter of? I'm done. <clears throat> Uh, verse 15, drink water from your own sister. Now, here's the positive side. The negative side is stay away. The positive is uh, love your spouse to pieces. Give her all of your devotion, all of your love. And he says, drink water from your own sister, running water from your own well. Uh, Hebrew imagery is... is uh, it's lovely. It's beautiful. It steers a, a mid-course between street talk about sexual matters that's always coarse and clinical language that seems sterile and cold. Whenever the, the Old Testament talks about lovemaking between husband and wife, it's always stated in, in its very uh, uh, flowery, allegorical, metaphorical terms. And when you try to explain it, you ruin it. I've tried to teach through Song of Solomon, and I always get the impression that you've destroyed the pictures because you just have to explain what the pictures mean in terms of the consequence of the culture and let the, uh, let, let the pictures sink in. And that's all I want to do this morning. He says, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well, when you understand that your cistern is your, your partner, your wife in this case. You understand what he's saying. Let her satisfy all of your needs. Let her slack your thirst. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, he's talking about your wife, 
She's yours. Don't share her with anyone else. Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain, that is your wife, be be blessed to you, be special. Uh, And may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. The deer in Palestine, there are none there today that I know of except up in the north. But in those, those days, there were deer all over the, the land. And they were very small deer, very delicate, great big brown eyes. It's a beautiful picture of femininity. She's a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be exhilarated. The, the NIV has captivated, but... The word is used in the Old Testament of wandering away and getting lost. It's uh, Ezekiel used it of sheep that nibble their way into lostness. In other words, lose yourself in loving your wife. Why, he said, would you lose yourself? Same, same verbs playing on the, on the word. Why wander away, my son, and lose yourself with an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? Why indeed, when you have your own special, private garden and and fountain reserved for you. And then again, the warning in verse 21. For a man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all his paths. We're not wise enough to avert the consequences of of our evil. We think we will get away with it, but we don't. We never do. The mills of God's justice grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. When we play games with God, we always lose because he, he makes the last move. And Proverbs says that God sees, we do everything under his purview, and he examines all of our paths or habits. It's the word for a wagon track, habitual uh, actions. And the evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him, the cords of his sin hold him fast. That's the second problem. Adultery tends to ensnare you. It becomes a lifestyle once you're, you, you are unfaithful to your spouse, it's easy to be unfaithful again, and it tends to be a, uh, a sin that you, that you repeat over and over again. And finally, he says, we will die for lack of discipline led astray by his own. He will die for lack of discipline or self-control. It's always the issue. Led astray by his own great folly. If we uh, succumb to the world's lie that Satisfaction can be found in, with someone else other than our, our mate. He says, you're a fool. doesn't mince words. We're utter fools. Costs too much. It's not worth it. The uh, Hebrew word for the adulteress throughout, almost consistently throughout the Old Testament is the word stranger. And the the uh, authorized version translated it the strange woman which always as a kid gave me the impression that it was someone weird but that's not uh, it's not the idea it's a stranger she's a stranger to you and your wife is always referred to as as your what you know your friend your friend and uh, those words I think are very meaningful our, our spouses our wives our husbands ought to be our best friend we don't we don't share the intimate secrets of our life. We don't share our bodies. We don't share the, the, the intimate things of our life with anyone except our friend. 
and everyone else is a stranger. doesn't mean we have to be cold and unapproachable, but in terms of, of relationship, he or she is a stranger to us. And if we do that, we will be different. You will be markedly different from the world around you, but God will give you the strength to be faithful. He's faithful to us. Let's be faithful to one another. Let's pray. Father, we simply offer up our lives to you because of your word, because of the promise that that you are faithful to us and you will do these things for us and in us. And because we know that, that the alternative is bitterness and weariness and emptiness and the loneliness that, uh, that sets in when we uh, depart from the truth. Give us the courage to stand fast. Help us as married couples to love each other purely with intensity. To court one another as we once did. To woo and win each other repeatedly. And uh, to be in our world an example of, of what you've called us to be. We, uh, we know our own weakness and our tendency to fail. We thank you for your forgiveness and the strength to carry on. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.